this morning we've arrived at the 10th commandment, 10 out of 10. Uh, and I'm going to read this one from Deuteronomy chapter 5, Deuteronomy 5:21. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Lord, would you open our eyes to see wondrous things in your word by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, specifically, this commandment means do not imagine taking for yourself something that belongs to someone else. Okay, that's the center of the bullseye for commandment number 10. Don't mentally entertain the idea of taking something that is your neighbor's. So I have a toddler, an almost three-year-old at home, and long before he snatches that toy out of his one-year-old brother's hand, you can see the coveting in his eyes. He didn't want that thing. He didn't want to play with that toy until his brother was playing with it and, joy- and enjoying it, but then he begins to covet, and before he ever takes, he's already taken in his heart. And the commandment itself gives us Some other examples, because as we become adults, we become a little bit more subtle, a little bit more adept at doing this than toddlers are. So the commandment says, don't covet your neighbor's spouse or his or her house, her position, his possessions. And we can apply this to our modern context. Don't imagine taking for yourself your neighbor's spouse. That one still works today. Not just looking at someone else's wife or husband and saying, I'll take that one instead, but... Do you ever look at another couple's marriage and think theirs seems so much better and easier than ours does? I want that marriage. Maybe you're single and you think, how did she end up with a guy like that? And I can't find a good man in all of God's green earth. It says, don't covet your neighbor's house. And that one also works today. Is that what's fueling all of the teardowns and sort of mansion rebuilds that we're seeing all over Charlotte right now? Here's just one of my many dirty little secrets. Sometimes when I come over to some of y'all's houses, on the drive back home, I'm sort of remembering that movie Parasite, right? And if you don't get that reference, don't go look it up because you will think much less of me, okay? But <laughs> don't covet your neighbor's position or status. I should have that job not him. If she has a car like that, I ought to be driving something even better. I want a physique like that. I I want that person's body. And in that sense, if you're using the King James translation, don't covet your neighbor's donkey also applies today. Then the end of the command... Then the end of the commandment sums it all up. It says, nor anything else that belongs to your neighbor. Don't covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. And one of, the Bi- one of the things that the Bible teaches us about coveting is that it is dangerous because it often leads to strife and division and even hatred and violence. And so James chapter four, verse one says, what, qu- what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. When you found out that your friend got an access code to the next round of Taylor Swift tickets, but you didn't, was your first thought, man, I hope she has a really great time? Or was it, I hope she falls into an open manhole? (laughs) 
How many friend groups are going to be divided because Taylor's only giving out four tickets instead of eight tickets this time around, right? This is why we can't have nice things. The Tenth Commandment. Now, I wanted to read from Deuteronomy because it helps us to get an idea of the larger spectrum of what this commandment is about because it includes the word desire. It includes a more general word, desire. And so it says, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, but then it says, you shall not desire your neighbor's house. There's a a narrow definition of the word covet, and we can already see that there's a spectrum of related considerations that have to do with our desires. And we have to be very careful about how we think about this for this reason. The Bible does not teach that all desire is bad. Okay? That's really important. The Bible doesn't teach that desire is bad. That is actually a Buddhist idea that sort of all human suffering and all of our problems in life arise from the fact that we have desires. And so enlightenment and freedom means extinguishing those inner desires so that we don't desire anything anymore. And the Bible doesn't say that. Instead, what it says is that what determines the goodness or the badness of a desire is the object of that desire and the nature of how we pursue that desire, okay? That's really important. The Bible teaches that your desires might be some of the truest and most important things about you, and then it judges that desire based on what is the object, the ultimate object of your desire and the quality by which you pursue it, okay? And so, for instance, we can imagine two people who both deeply desire to have children. And one says, God, I really want a child. I feel extremely sad that we don't have a child. Would you please help us to get pregnant? And the other says, God, I really want a child. I'm sad that I don't have a child. All my friends are having children, and it's not fair that we can't. And if you don't give us what we want soon, I'm not sure that I'll believe that you're good anymore. And indignation and anger and covetousness starts to seep into the heart. Or we might imagine two people who say, God, I really wanted that promotion. But one says, I've worked hard for a promotion. I'm sad I got passed over for the last promotion. Please help me, Lord. Guide me, Lord. Give me your wisdom. While the other says, I worked hard for a promotion. I should have gotten the last promotion. I definitely deserved it more than that guy. And if I don't get a promotion soon, I might have to do something drastic. And rage, frustration, insignificance, and covetousness starts to seep into the heart. Even as I was writing this this week, I was convicted that I often feel covetous of uh, Aaron Engel and AK, who are both about my age, and their, their job title both has pastor and my job title is pastoral resident. And sometimes that makes me feel anger and, and like hatred towards those guys who are some of my best friends and who I love because I covet what they have, what I think that I deserve. And in, all, in those cases, you can imagine how to an outside observer, the b- behavior of two people might look very similar, but on the inside, something very different is going on. Right? And that's why when it comes to this 10th commandment, we should be very slow to assign sinful desires to other people, but very attentive to and vigilant about our own hearts, paying attention to our own desires. Two definitions that I found that sort of uh, summarize this 
what the 10th commandment, the sort of desire the 10th commandment warns against. Coveting is, quote, an insatiable desire for getting the world or an inordinate, ungoverned, ungoverned, selfish desire for more and more and more. And I actually think there's someone who many of us are familiar with that is an, a perfect example of this sort of desire. Another possible translation for the word covet in the 10th commandment is precious, to count something as precious, to count it as my precious. The character Smeagol, Golem from the Lord of the Rings, shows us that coveting, uncontrolled, insatiable, selfish desire shows us what it looks like. And when we covet something, we more and more consistently hold it before our mind's eye and we mentally coddle and caress it and we find ourselves obsessing over it and we retreat into a deep, dark place within ourselves, imagining what we think is the most precious thing and our heart starts to shrivel and harden and even die because of unchecked desire. Now think about the important logical implication of the 10th commandment, okay? If to covet means to inordinately desire something that doesn't belong to you, to dream of taking it, then isn't the 10th commandment just applying the 8th commandment, you shall not steal, to our hearts, to our insides, right? And if that's the case, then doesn't that mean that the whole corpus of the Ten Commandments, the whole group of Ten Commandments, is bracketed by heart-level considerations, right? If the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me, that is, no gods that aren't the one true God in your heart, and the last commandment is, do not steal in your heart, then doesn't that mean that the entire morality, the entire Christian ethic is more concerned with your heart than with behavior modification. We've said it throughout this series, but in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus isn't adding to the Ten Commandments. He isn't upping the ante. He is just interpreting them the way that they were always meant to be interpreted, which is that God cares more about heart transformation than mere behavior modification. Now, why is that? Why does God care more about your heart's deep desires than your external behaviors? It's because God knows that desire is direction. Desire is direction, that love is an orientation, that what you love the most will determine the direction, the orientation of your life. I heard a pastor say once that what the Bible means by the word heart is a person's subconscious orientation to the rest of the world. Right? And if that's true, then it means that we will move toward, we will grow toward the things that our heart desires the most, which is exactly what the Bible teaches. This is what Jesus meant when he said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Wherever you locate the thing that you treasure the most, your heart will move in that direction and eventually end up there. So imagine you're on a vacation in Amsterdam and you went to Amsterdam to see those incredible tulip fields that sit on the outer edges of the city. Have you seen pictures of these things? Beautiful reds and oranges and pinks. And so you set out from your hotel toward the tulip fields, but then in the corner of your eye, you see a faint red glow coming from a side alley. And you turn and follow the red glow. Where are you gonna end up? The red light district. Right? And the thing that you wanted to see 
is not the place that you ended up. You followed a closer and easier desire and ended up somewhere that you didn't want to be or maybe it is where you want it to be. Coveting is like that. You were made for glory. Don't settle for cheap imitations. Don't settle for fool's gold. Where your treasure is, where your desires aim, there your heart will end up, which is why Gollum's story in The Lord of the Rings ends with him falling into Mount Doom after the ring. And it's why a life of unexamined, unchecked desires often leads to a place of dissatisfaction, loneliness, and sorrow, a hell of our own choosing. The Ten Commandments, along with the first, shows us that God is more concerned with the direction of our desires, that is, with our hearts, than he is with external behavior modification. He's not primarily interested in modification. He is interested in transformation. If you find out that you have black mold under the floorboards of your living room, you don't just need to rearrange the furniture. You need to kill the mold. We need transformation, not just rearrangement, not just modification. And that's why Jesus said to the Pharisees, the masters of external behavior, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you clean the outside of the cup and plate, but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. First clean the inside, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. If we're willing to hear those tough words of Jesus, and if we're willing to feel the deep cutting conviction of this 10th commandment, something crucial happens in us. It's the crucial first step. Listen to how two different pastors described this. Francis Schaeffer says, thou shalt not covet is the internal commandment which shows the man who thinks himself to be moral that he really needs a savior. The average such moral person who has lived comparing himself to other people and comparing himself to a rather easy list of rules can feel that he is getting along all right. But suddenly when he is confronted with the inward commands not to covet, he is brought to his knees. Or Martin Luther said, this last commandment then is addressed not to those whom the world considers wicked rogues, but precisely to the most upright, to people who wish to be commended as honest and virtuous because they have not offended against the preceding commandments. This commandment more than any other convinces us that we are sinners, and it does this for the gracious purpose of showing us that we need a savior. If the Christian life is about heart transformation, that makes it impossible for us to do in our own strength. You can't change your own heart in the same way that you can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You realize, we we throw that phrase around a lot, you realize you can't literally pull yourself up anywhere by your own bootstraps, and yet that's often how we think about change in the Christian life. More effort, try harder, do more. And the Ten Commandments brings us to our knees, and that hurts. And that's the crucial first step because it forces us to look outside of ourselves for rescue. Consider this. Fill your imagination with this if you can. 
When God looks at you, when he peers into your heart, he sees everything. He sees all of your desires, your deepest, most secret longings. And he sees the best things about you, the most beautiful things about you, yes, and he sees the darkest desires too, your hidden, vicious covetings. God sees down every back alley and into every red light district of our souls. And he even sees how little we desire him. He sees how little I desire him. God sees in my heart all the ways that I say, I want something else. I need something more, something better than you. Think about that. Hold it in your mind if you can. God knows everything about you, every desire, every covet, including how little you desire him, and he deeply desires you. He desires you. He knows you entirely, and he desires you passionately. Not because he needs something from you, but simply because he wants you. From eternity past, he desired to make you his daughter or his son. And in all of human history, the strongest desire that a person ever felt was the desire of Jesus on the cross to make you alive and in love with him forever. He wanted you before you ever had a single thought or feeling about him, and he did everything necessary to make you his own. And if we can be starkly, nakedly honest about how little we deserve or desire God, and in that very moment, hear him say how much he desires us, that's the gospel, and that is where transformation comes from. I mean, you need to hear Jesus say this to you. You need to put your own name in these sentences, right? Jason, I desire you. I want, to be, I want you to be my brother, my friend, Emily, I know you to your core, and I love you extravagantly, ravishingly. Beloved, I I wanted you from the beginning, so I claimed you on the cross, and I will never let you go. And even when your desire for me is a smoldering ember, my love for you is a blazing fire. I almost want to stop there, right? The most important point of this sermon is not to fix our coveting as such. It's not to solve the external problem. It's to realize how in Jesus, our coveting is entirely covered by mercy and love. But it turns out that this message of salvation, this gospel, is also the source of heart transformation. The gospel is not just a doorway into the Christian life. It is the pattern and the power of the entirety of the Christian life. So consider Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with with him graciously give us all things? Now maybe you've heard that verse before, but have you really thought about what it's saying? Much of our coveting arises from the fact that we don't believe that promise. Do you think that God gave his son, that Jesus gave his life, 
to save us into an existence of semi-satisfaction, of sort of moderate happiness. Romans 8.32 means that when we're struggling with unmet desires, when we feel the pain of not having something that we really want or losing something that we really loved, the reason cannot be that God wants less for you. We don't always know what the reason is. That's important. In this life, we do not always know the reason for our unmet desires and our losses and our pain, but we know what the reason is not. It's not that God is withholding or stingy or that he wants less for you than you want for yourself. But also, and I think this might actually be the sort of day-to-day boots-on-the-ground cure for coveting, Remember that when God claimed you in Christ, the seal that he put on you, the deposit he put in you was his Holy Spirit. In other words, the best thing that God gives us in salvation is himself. The Holy Spirit is God's invitation for us to experience more consistent communion, more friendship, more mutual enjoyment, more intimacy with him. And I think the other reason that coveting and inordinate desires arise in us is that we don't experience God this way. Maybe we've even become cynical and we no longer believe that we could enjoy God more than the things that we desire. I love this pastor named Tim Keller. I named my son after him. Uh, his, his, his memorial service was this week, and if you haven't seen it, you need to. It was incredible. I've read a lot of his books. I've heard a lot of his sermons. I've been inspired by many quotes from Keller. I think that the best thing that I ever heard him say was about a year ago in a podcast. It was that Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast. Listen to this quote, okay? It's long, but follow along with me. I really think that this might be the key to the Christian life, to actually living the Christian life, okay? Keller said, the purpose of prayer is to actually have the love of God shed abroad in your heart. I mean to actually have it, to actually see his face, to actually sense the grace of God, to have communion with the Father in his love, the Son in his grace, and the Holy Spirit in his comfort, There actually has to be a genuine experiential life. And over the years, with lots and lots of communion with God, you begin to identify your deepest sins and apply Jesus to them. You have to say, looking at who Jesus is and what he's done, I mean, listen to this. Looking at who Jesus is and what he's done, how does that weaken this inordinate desire in my heart? How does this reorder the loves of my heart? You've got to have a a vibrant prayer life. And I have to say, the more successful you are, the more likely you will feel too busy for it, and that's deadly. The only real accountability that cannot be avoided is when you've experienced God's presence and his love, and it is so delicious that you say, I do not want to lose that. I can't lose that. Do you sometimes experience communion with the Father and his love, with Christ in his grace and with the Holy Spirit in his comfort and say, that's the thing, I cannot live without that. That's a quote I want to live by. Do you hear what he's saying there? When we prioritize communion with God, when we come to him open and honest and name our true desires, some of the truest things about us, 
good and bad to him, and when we ask for him by the power of his spirit to apply Jesus to him, to them, what happens over time is that communion with God becomes the thing that we desire the most. We experience the love of the Father, the grace of Jesus, and the friendship of the Spirit in a real way. We get occasional tastes of it. And what happens is what one theologian called the expulsive power of a new affection. Our desires are gradually redirected. Our loves are reoriented, which is to say our hearts are transformed. And real change begins to happen from the inside out. Do you believe that that can actually happen? It can, and it does, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, last point. Go quickly through this one. I think that the opposite of covetousness is contentment. I think in the Bible, the the opposite word of covet is content. And the Bible has a lot to say about contentment, but I think that we often misunderstand what contentment actually means. Okay. Contentment does not mean settling for less or saying the stuff that I have in this world is enough, right? at least not in the ultimate sense. Contentment doesn't mean settling. It means intentionally saying, I have enough of this world because I want more of Jesus. It's not settling for less. It is creating space, making room in your life for more of Jesus, Listen to Philippians 4.11. Pay attention to the logic of this, okay? You've heard the verse at the end of this, Philippians 4.13, but do you know that it's connected to contentment? I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You see the logic there. It actually works in both directions. The secret to contentment in all circumstances, highs and lows, in plenty and in want, is Jesus, help me. Jesus, be my strength. Jesus, transform me. Jesus, fill fill the desires that I feel with more and more of you. And alternatively, choosing contentment, intentionally cultivating contentment, in our hearts and in our lives, which is very difficult, is not really settling for less. It's clearing space, making room in our hearts for Jesus. So three practical possibilities. Cultivating contentment in your life might mean doing less than you can do. Choosing to be less busy, less productive, less successful than you could be to create space in your day to create space in your calendar, to create space in your relationships for Jesus to move into. Both of these are tough for us where we live. Second, cultivating contentment might mean buying less than you can buy. Is it possible that in communities that are especially wealthy, that we don't even know the desires and the covetings of our hearts because we go so quickly go from covet desire to purchase, that we don't ever actually make space for Jesus to move into that desire, right? And Amazon becomes our Holy Spirit. It might mean spending less than you can afford to spend to create space for Jesus to move into your desires. 
And thirdly, cultivating contentment almost certainly means seeking the well-being, seeking the good of others before and above your own well-being. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Ten Commandments. God, and it, uh, it, it's an astonishing truth that you gave them to Moses almost 3,500 years ago and that you have been guiding your people by this deep moral code all that time. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive me, Lord, for the ways that I make the Ten Commandments primarily about external behavior modification. And would you shine the light of your truth and conviction into my heart to show me where I need change, where I need transformation, God. Not because, Lord, you're angry or that I should feel ashamed or guilty, but because you are inviting us to more. Transformation is an invitation to more communion and adventure with you. Would you do that in us by the power of your Holy Spirit? In Jesus' name, amen.